What is a complete human? Is it a cover model? Is it a science geek? Is it a fitness expert? Or all of the above and more? Jana and Evan are crusaders that walk the earth looking at today's issues that touch our hearts and minds. The honest and hopeful outlook on the advancement of today's society. The science behind the decay of human relationships. The necessary preparations for future generations. Join us as we look deep inside ourselves and embark on a journey into becoming a complete human. Who are the Clitorati? Some say that they are a myth. Some say they died out years ago if they ever really existed at all. Others say they exist only in secret, a shadow organization of women who gather in private, exploring the limits of their sexual potential while patiently waiting to take their rightful place as supreme rulers of the planet. Okay, we might have made up the clitorati, but Wednesday Martin, an anthropologist who has devoted her life to understanding human sexuality, discusses the evolutionary power of the clitoris and is challenging society's deeply held beliefs on monogamy. Understanding our sexual past and the dysfunction that has come out of it is just the first step. Beyond the clitoris, there is a rich world of science that helps us understand how our evolutionary biology is fundamentally at odds with how society has conditioned us to behave. In evaluating the role that relationships play in the complete human journey, we have asked time and again whether marriage is dead, or if monogamy can survive the latest technological revolution. Join us for this candid conversation with Wednesday Martin on the real science behind human relationships. Hey, hey guys, Jana Breslin here again. Most of you have heard me speak on the benefits of beets. Beets are well known as a powerful superfood and help the body create nitric oxide, the miracle molecule that supports a healthy cardiovascular system and sexual function. As an athlete, the nitric oxide boosting benefits help me power through workouts better than any artificial pre-workout I've ever taken. Now, this is why we created Complete Human Res Beet. You get all of the benefits of organic beets with additional anti-aging support from fermented resveratrol. Resveratrol is a longevity gene activator and is something I have turned to for years to help support anti-aging and optimal health. If you're not a fan of the taste of beets, we've got you covered with our all-natural and delicious dark cherry flavor. I take Resbeat twice a day and I have to say, I feel incredible. Head on over to store.completehuman.com and enter the code podcast at checkout to get 20% off. Hi, I'm Wednesday Martin. I'm a social scientist and a storyteller and a New York Times bestselling author. And for the last six or seven years, I have focused full time on the study of female sexuality and looking at the newer data um, about uh, who females are sexually across species and across cultures. That's a so fascinating good. intro. Yes. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to talking to you guys and connecting with your audience a little bit. Us as well. I actually first heard about you on your podcast. I, I came across your podcast, True, True Sex, Wild Love. Yeah. True sex and wild love. Yeah. And I just, I fell in love with all of the content that you guys put out there. So mm-hmm. I was just so stoked when you agreed to come on our show and join us for today's topic. So yeah. thank you for being here. Well, we're talking I'm- more about true sex and wild love. Yes. <laughs> yeah, please. I mean, all of it, it's all on the table today. Absolutely. 
amazing. So as we kind of dive into your history, um, everything that you've written really brings me back to an anthropological book I read 15 years ago called What's Love Got to Do With It? And it was this fascinating look at, you know, how we've evolved as a species and how love is really kind of a human construct. It's not necessary, not necessary for the survival of the species. Um, and, and in fact, I, I think they hypothesized that at a certain point, you know, human beings didn't even know that sex and, you know, sex equaled pregnancy. Um, eventually we figured that out. But, uh, you know, as we've kind of evolved through the centuries, we've gotten to this point where the human pair bonding, the human dynamic of emotions have really become an integral part in our daily lives. And we seem to have really cocked that up uh, massively. So I'd like for you to just kind of give our listeners a view of some of the really in-depth topics that you talk about. And let's really transition into what does modern love look like now? Oh, wow. What a great, juicy question and way to start out. I love it. I'm a little intimidated. Um, well, first just of take all, your pants off. It'll be fine. I mean, let me, let me just take off my pants and get comfortable with this. You know, the first thing that occurs to me as a social scientist and somebody who looks at the world through the lens of um, anthropology, which people might know is the um, comparative study of different cultures. That's not uh, the teenage clothing store at the mall, right? Not, the, not to be confused with that. That's yeah, okay. IP. And the anthropology that I'm talking about is why <laughs> at the end. And also the other uh, lens through which I view the world is primatology, which uh, your listeners might know is the uh, study of monkeys and apes. Um, and so those are my two ways of viewing the world. And when you talk about what is love through the lenses of anthropology and primatology, you have to take like a comparative view and a long view. But what strikes me the most is the immediate moment. Um, so if you ask me now, what is modern love? I probably could not disentangle it from COVID and how that has impacted our sexual and social behaviors. Um, and then also from technology and how that has kind of changed mating and dating. Um, and then in both those instances, I would say that because COVID and tech have really changed things, uh, but certain things really remain the same. So our struggle as a species uh, to remain monogamous uh, has been pretty much the same for 12,000 years since we decided that, you know, we quote, should unquote, be monogamous. Um, our struggle with connection and uh, romance has uh, been consistent, um, you know, whether we're doing it on dating apps or uh, when we used to actually call people on the phone or however we're doing it. Whoa, 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 um, hold on one second. Could you explain that a little bit more? <laughs> calling people on the phone. I, 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 <laughs> I remember I'm, that. I'm not sure what that is. <laughs> the horror which, with, with which I myself as a writer and a researcher, if somebody's calling me on the phone, I kind of like recoil as if there's a snake ready to strike me. <laughs> That's how I look at my phone now. But that wasn't the case decades ago, right? Decades ago, the phone was like a vital way of connecting with people. When I was a kid, we talked on the phone for hours about the boys or girls that we liked with the boys or girls that we liked. Um, and it was just how we connected. So that is a really funny thing, how people now uh, will sext and text um, and don't like talking on the phone. Um, and then there's been a shift within that shift, I think, since about maybe several months into COVID, 
anecdotally, I noticed people really wanting to FaceTime. So let's talk about what's been consistent for a long time. Um, my friend, the anthropologist Helen Fisher, um, who works uh, for a dating app, among other things, um, talks a lot about pair bonding and the um, sort of neurochemical pathways um, and the neurofeedback me uh, mechanisms that get activated when we, um, you know, are connected to someone, right? So we know that there are some hormones implicated, prolactin, oxytocin, dopamine, norepinephrine, and um, all, all these, the fun ones, all the fun ones, all the good ones. Um, people might not have heard of a lot of them, but uh, some of them they have, like they, a lot of people probably know that oxytocin is like the cuddle hormone, for example. Um, oxytocin is actually kind of more of a jack of all trades hormone that does multiple things, but that's mostly what people know about it. And that's a good thing to know about it. Um, so anyway, Dr. Helen Fisher is an anthropologist who has really successfully and I think smartly brought discussions um, of the biochemistry of connection to anthropology. And what happened several months uh, into the pandemic when our uh, fear response started to recede, when we started to be desensitized a little bit to that just primitive terror that we felt at first, which was warranted, and our body setting off alarms about our physical safety. Uh, what happened uh, after that was we started to really crave the kind of connection that came in our day-to-day -day interactions before, right? Like I live in New York City and every morning in the before times, I would go out and I would say good morning to my doorman. And those um, that neurocircuitry in my body uh, that and your body that happens when we connect with somebody even instantaneously, just for a little bit, all those pathways would get activated and things would start happening, right, in a good way in our bodies uh, that Helen Fisher writes about a lot. And we were lacking that, right? Not only was I not talking to my boy, uh, my uh, doorman, sorry, that's an interesting slip. Whoa, and, okay. You <laughs> heard I it here really like my doorman. They're great. Cinnamon. But, <laughs> But I, but I also wasn't like seeing my friends in the same way, right? I wasn't just seeing people as I walked in Central Park every morning. And so things started shutting down and changing on a chemical level, which impacts you psychologically. So what I'm, this is a long way of saying a few months in, now people, we were hating Zoom meetings, a lot of us right away, but I noticed people turning to FaceTime and I noticed people telling me, I really need to see people's faces. And I thought that was such an important thing and showed sort of what flexible, uh, adaptive sexual and social strategists we are as a species that we realized, shit, I'm not getting what I was getting before on that level. And even if we didn't realize what it was that we were lacking, we knew that being in touch with our friends and loved ones and seeing each other's faces, those visual cues, when I look at you guys and I'm talking to you, I'm mimicking your facial expressions and you're mimicking mine. It's a form of connection. There are many, connection is a spectrum, right? So even when you and I are doing this and kind of mimicking each other's facial expressions and giving each other visual uh, cues through this Zoom, 
we're getting, we're priming those neural pathways, we're getting those neurochemicals flowing, right? And so I was amazed as a social scientist who studies connection and relationships and sex to see how people knew what to do. People knew what to do. They knew how to model for other people. This is what we need right now. Um, so that's one of the reasons that people went back to phone calls. If you're totally isolated, hearing somebody's voice is better than nothing. And if you can get on FaceTime, hearing somebody's voice and seeing somebody's face is even better. Um, so, and as a social scientist, I'm so relieved for so many reasons um, that we're having the vaccine roll out and many people will feel and be safer having in-person connections um, because literally our, our, our chemistry, our neurobiology are dependent on us being able to do that, being able to connect with other people. And if I could just say, one of the things, one of the reasons my perspective is a little different is because of the anthropology. And, you know, to me, the way I see it, a psychologist might say, yeah, people crave connection. It's important uh, for us to connect. It's how we are psychologically and physiologically. My view informed by anthropology and, and evolutionary biology uh, is that, you know, we evolved as a really pro-social affiliative species, right? Homo sapiens is here because we had really clever social strategies and sexual strategies and ways of connecting, right? And so one of the ways to think about how we've been disconnected from each other during COVID and how much we're looking forward some of us to reconnection, although some of us are very ambivalent. You know, <laughs> in our evolutionary uh, prehistory, as uh, the anthropologist Katie McKinnon says, um, you know, we had, there were predators, we had predators, and we didn't have fangs, and we didn't have claws. What we had as a species was each other, right? So when we were together, we were, we literally had more of a fighting chance, and we were better protected. Now, Fast forward to now, I'm one of the people who believes that a lot of that software is still in there. And we know the biochemistry of connection is still in there as a protective thing for us. And that's the reason why so many people uh, really experienced COVID and isolation um, as a threat to their lives. Um, because not only because uh, if you get COVID, it, it can be really serious. But because for us, being cut off from other people feels like potential death. It is, it means social death, um, you know, in our evolutionary prehistory or in our more recent history, you know, we banished people, right? We said, you're out of the group. That's a really severe punishment and always has been because it feels like death. Um, and it's because it used to mean death. If you were out on your own when there were predators, uh, you would die. All those feelings are still in us. All those feelings uh, of danger from of disconnection being dangerous are still in us. So it's been fascinating uh, to see how we've adjusted and it'll be fascinating to see how we adjust still, particularly sexually speaking. Absolutely. Before we get into that, does this really represent a trauma? And what are what are the mechanisms in place historically that we're going to need to put, you know, that we're going to need to find to overcome this? Because if we're so chemically detached from people as a result of COVID and we're suffering this almost banishment, right? You know, you've been banished from the tribe, go out and fight saber tooth tiger on your own. Most likely <laughs> you're going to be dinner. Like if we feel that way, 
how do we adapt outside of technology? Because I, I, and I, I do want to talk about something, love languages, you know, so remind me of that. But if the, if the chemical connection that comes from physical contact um, is only replaced by technology, do we still suffer some type of trauma that's going to be difficult for all of us to overcome? You know, that's another great question about, you know, what does the future hold for us? I think that one of the most interesting things for me to have been observing here in L.A. as a New Yorker is how uh, people have inevitably even people. Now, now, there are people who during COVID just didn't care. It wasn't real to them. Um, there are people who are COVID deniers. They don't believe the data and science. And, you, you know, you can show them the demographics of half a million people uh, sadly dying from COVID tragically, and they still don't believe it. Um, right. So Those people don't listen to our show. <laughs> right. Okay. So uh, what I wanted to say was, you know, there has been a spectrum of responses to COVID, obviously. But even what I wanted to say is, even people um, who have been taking precautions, who have been, you know, appropriately worried about harming people they love inadvertently, even if they don't think of themselves as vulnerable. Uh, even among those people, I have been observing lots of slip ups, right? Because the mandate to connect is so intense. So there's a range, sort of a spectrum of slip ups from uh, the part, the house next to my house in LA is a big party house, right? And they have these big parties and there are lots of cars and lots of people. They're probably guys in their 30s, right? And uh, that happens a lot in the neighborhood where I am, that there will be these big illegal parties. Um, so that's one place on the spectrum where people are slipping up and saying, I need connection so badly, I'm gonna pretend this isn't happening. But then you see slip ups uh, on a, in a different way. Um, for example, you know, I was um, out with a friend last night and we ate outside at a distance, um, but we were at a restaurant, right? And afterwards my friend said, let's pop into Erwan. And <laughs> now, you know, if I had two vaccines, I might be very comfortable with that. Um, and she um, might have a very different comfort level without a vaccine. So that range and variation is an indication, what I'm trying to say, that afterwards there will be a lot of range and variation in how people behave. So what is the future of connection and sexuality and monogamy and desire um, after COVID? Uh, time will tell, but what we see is that people have different risk tolerances right now. People have always had different risk tolerances about relationships and sex, and we can't predict the future, but for sure people are going to uh, say, I've been talking to people on FaceTime long enough, time to go to a party, uh, you know, time to hang out in person time to uh, hook up. Um, and so there's gonna be a lot of that, but I do think that what we have to understand is that our social behavior and our sexual behavior is really niche dependent, right? So depending on our ecological, our ecological niche, that's gonna have a big part of what we do post COVID. Are we living in a culture where people have been flouting the rules anyway? 
Um, do we have a lot of friends who were Trump supporters and didn't believe the science? That's one possible thing. Uh, are we in our 30s and do we live in our early 30s and are we surrounded by a lot of people who aren't married or partnered for life and where people are super gregarious, right? There are certain towns in the US like Austin, for example, right? Where, where uh, that will, the, the ethos of Austin has determined how people in their 30s are behaving around COVID and will continue to do so. Um, are you a person who's been cautious? And is this going to create a lot of anxiety for you that suddenly you can go out and you haven't had those neural pathways primed in the same way? You haven't, you know, had that bath of neurotransmitters in the same time. And now you're saying, how do I do this? Do I want to do this? And I think that, you know, a lot of people talk about how after the Great Depression, um, sorry, after uh, the, the Great Influenza epidemic um, in the earlier part of the 20th century, you know, that begat the Roaring Twenties. Uh, so you hear a lot of uh, experts saying that they think that there's going to be a real flourishing, that there's going to be some outrageous sexual and social behavior after this pandemic. Uh, if my neighbors are any indication, <laughs> it's going to be lit. Um, um, but I'm also really interested to see how people have been having sex all along, how they've negotiated this, their deep desire and need for sex, how they've negotiated it with the fear of COVID and maybe even dying from having sex. I'm interested in seeing that. And I'm very interested in observing what will happen uh, to those of us who have, you know, I, for example, I took uh, COVID precautions really seriously. And I feel myself getting really nervous when I see, you know, a group of people in ways that I hadn't before. So I can't wait for there to be data uh, and research about this. What I do know is nobody ever stopped having sex, ever, you know? No. I mean, some people did, but in the aggregate, people did not stop having sex uh, during COVID at all. No, no, because then, then it would have gone from a pandemic into the apocalypse. <laughs> like, like, if that's the pressure release valve, then yeah, if people stopped having sex, it would have been bad. I remember um, Jack Turbin and I, um, he's the MD who writes a lot about trans youth. And we uh, wrote an op-ed together for the LA Times about how COVID was impacting relationships. And we asked a bunch of therapists and they said, oh, I, my, my couples who were doing fine before are doing fine now. Only the people who were having problems before are having problems now. And Jack and I looked at each other like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. We're <laughs> having problems. Other people are having problems too. So we kind of dug into that. And then we decided afterwards, I said, you know, we should really um, write something about how it is time to pivot um, from telling people just don't have sex, it's time to pivot to sort of like a harm reduction model and start talking about how people actually never stopped having sex outside their households, many people. And um, it's time to get real, like we had to get real during the AIDS crisis. We couldn't say to people, oh, no, just don't have sex. Just stop. Don't do that. That doesn't work. Abstinence, we know that abstinence education doesn't work. And I said to him, you know, he and I agreed it would be really interesting to write an op-ed um, about how to have sex as safely as you can during a pandemic, because he and I are among the experts who knew that 
even people who were scared of COVID, um, a lot of them would be having sex outside their households. And it was time to stop looking the other way and time to stop shaming them and time to start engaging them just for being human beings who wanted to have sex. So that message was very controversial at the time. And, uh, you know, people in the medical community didn't want to write about it. They didn't want to talk about it, but I was really glad to see that the New York city department of health came out with some very rad kind of sex positive guidelines for having sex during the pandemic, which remain relevant until, you know, the people who want to be vaccinated are. Well, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because I remember reading a specific article on the don't have sex, especially, you know, gay homosexual sex during the AIDS crisis. And, and what that did was it actually increased the uh, the AIDS epidemic because people are like, well, you're telling me not to have sex. That's a biological hardwired thing inside of me. If I'm going to get it regardless, then I'll just take condoms out of the equation. And so that that don't do it. I mean, from the dawn of time, we told kids in school abstinence is the only way yeah mm-hmm. does that really yeah. work so like it's um, gonna happen it's gonna happen yeah we... like Jana says it's gonna happen it's gonna happen and yeah. you know to your point evan and to your point Jana, um we have data that abstinence education doesn't work and here's why if you tell people that they shouldn't be having sex they won't take precautions right if you tell people if you have sex you're going to go to hell that kid is not going to buy condoms that young woman is not going to insist that her partner use condoms or she's not going to ask her family, listen, I want to be on birth control. I'm not old enough to go to the doctor and get it for myself. Um, so we know that abstinence only education is unrealistic. And we know, uh, especially um, from data, that the, the reason behind why it doesn't work is when you tell people to abstain, not only will they not abstain, um, because on um, on some level, we are wired for sex and connection, um, but also because then you take away their line of defense. If they can't, if they're not supposed to be having sex, they can't acknowledge having safer sex. So, I was actually uh, really uh, glad, is a word, a weird word to use, but I was relieved that the New York City Department of Health. Uh, got so realistic so quickly and came up with their guidelines, which people were laughing about, you know, and even scientists I knew were making jokes about those New York City Department of Health safer sex during COVID guidelines, but they were good. And they were based on data from the AIDS epidemic and the understanding that no matter what the threat, people will keep having sex. So uh, the New York City uh, Department of Health guidelines uh, if you'll indulge me for a minute, because maybe maybe this will be important to some of your listeners to, Absolutely. to help them have, have safer sex. But those guidelines came out months ago. One of them was um, have sex if you're going to have sex outdoors if you can, right? If it's somebody who's not in your household or in your bubble, have sex outdoors if you can. If you can't have sex outdoors, have sex with uh, doors and windows all open. Uh, um, have sex, both of you wearing an N95 or a KN95 mask. Uh, have sex in positions where you're more distant. Avoid, you know, the kissing and the making out and whatever that so many of us really love during sex. Have sex uh, with uh, one person behind you, right? So if you're having penetrative sex, that would be like doggy style, right? saying keep your faces uh, further apart from each other. Uh, One of my favorite things in the New York City Department of Health 
COVID sex guidelines was um, if you have access to a glory hole, use that. <laughs> God bless New York City Department of Health. Wow. Right. We've ever said the word glory hole on our podcast before. It's great. Yeah, that's fantastic. This, this is, this is, I'm excited. Yeah. And they were also really frank about how COVID had been found in fecal material. So anal sex would be a more risky form of sex. They didn't know whether it was in vaginal secretions or not. It seemed not to be. So anyway, what I loved was there was a document that acknowledged that we evolved for sex and connection. Uh, we evolved for a range of ways to be sexual and to connect like a wide range, right? Like if you're asexual, that's normal. Uh, if you're uh, into group sex, that's normal. Um, you know, we're very flexible social and sexual strategists. So the basic point is that as flexible as we are sexually and socially, it, we have to craft realistic messages during times of crisis that acknowledge that people really need sex and connection really really need it so i was i was proud of my hometown for that <laughs> good good for them good and for i them. hope it might be helpful to people who are not vaccinated yet but want to have sex want to hook up okay can you do it outside so that, have- from a legal standpoint i do want to address what is new york city's position on public indecency if they're telling people <laughs> to get it get busy on site do the cops no longer write public indecency tickets <laughs> Because I imagine like you're hooking up in Central Park and be like, wait, the government told me to do this. Yeah, that you know, th- I mean, that would be interesting for somebody to argue uh, to a cop like, um, no, look, I'm trying to have safer sex. I'm trying to. I don't know. I don't do. know what would happen. I would hope that it would be an enlightened cop who said, you know what? Just move along. Just move along. Yeah, right. <laughs> Maybe he's behind the bushes. <laughs> It'd be yeah. better than him saying, come along. <laughs> <laughs> or come along, whichever way. You know, this is a little bit of a sideshow, but there is a long history of public sex in New York City. And I live right by a place where there used to be lots of public sex. And public sex has often been um, the purview of persecuted, uh, what we might think of or used to call sexual minorities, right? So in New York, I live near Central Park. Uh, and one of the closest spots to me in Central Park is the Ramble. And the Ramble was historically uh, this part of Central Park that everybody left it alone, right? They just, it was overgrown, um, hardly anybody went there, and it became a place for gay men to have sex. And I remember in my 20s, in my 30s even, Uh, getting kind of turned around and walking through the ramble and like, you know, there were men with their pants down around their ankles at like 11 AM. Right. And uh, guys having sex on the, there are big rocks right in central park and in the ramble. So having sex there and uh, that was their place uh, to have sex. And um, so there's a long history of that in New York. Now the ramble has been disnified now, like, it's like the pathways were widened. They put up bird feeders. They trimmed all the trees. <laughs> there are a lot of, uh, it was written up in a, uh, I believe in a, a, a Chinese language um, tour book. So there are often a lot of Chinese tourists there or there were before the pandemic. And it feels like a very different ramble than it did 20 or even 30 years ago. Um, but 
you know, I took us on a little bit of a cul-de-sac there, but somebody mm -hmm. should write a book about the history of public sex and uh, how it's usually stigmatized uh, uh, populations who are having public sex in places like parks at night. It's not going to stop. Interesting. It's yeah, it's absolutely not going to stop. And, and I think that there's a certain point when we look at historically where sex became such a shameful thing. And I'd like for you to talk a lot about that. And, and I think we usually tie that to the church, where sex becomes a procreation only thing, even though we are, as you pointed out, biologically hardwired to want to do that. And, and so, you know, we talk a lot about on this show and in another podcast is how the uh, the abstinence thing and the the church's position that premarital sex will you know send you to hell has caused a lot of sexual uh, problems for people. You know, there, right. there's there's this you know guilt that comes along with it. There's all of these yeah. negative associations with sex. Um, I want to dance over that, but then really kind of talk about a lot of the things that you discuss is is monogamy, infidelity, polyamory. Yeah. Some of the things that I think are going to be really exciting for our listeners to hear. Yeah. So just this first point about the church, I always like to say that through the lens of anthropology, the church is really a symptom of a larger social shift uh, that meant that we started to control, be, have a more controlling attitude towards sexuality, particularly female sexuality. I have to apologize. Gardeners are here. Like my neighbor's gardeners it just it's podcasting in the age of COVID. We, we I just have to apologize for the way things are. And if there's a little noise, I'll move and people will have to watch and see and hear that. It's fine. We've we've had so many of those issues on the show. Yeah, it's like no gardeners, worries. pool guy, yeah. you know, daughters running in the background. Public like, sex people running by. The yeah. People having sex in public. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I always like to say that when people talk about the church, I like to say, you know what? It wasn't really the church. Uh, what happened first is that 10 to 12,000 years ago, there was a shift in modes of production, of food production. And we shifted uh, mostly, um, and this was in the Fertile Crescent region of what is today the Middle East that this started, but 10 to 12,000 years ago, um, we shifted from hunting and gathering to agriculture, an early form of agriculture, and then later to the form of agriculture that we know now. Now, it's a bit much to get into it, into the uh, nitty gritty details on your podcast. I don't want people to fall asleep um, any more than I may have already lulled them to sleep. <laughs> Not at my, all. my husband always says, wow, you know how to make sex boring. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. If, wow. we, if we say the word sex here, it's like everyone's excited to listen. More, okay. So it's, no, well, no worries. Let me see if I can make it nerdy. I mean, I, I make sex nerdy, but I hope that it, it helps people. Talk nerdy to me. <laughs> Talk nerdy to me about sex. Yes, and take your pants off. Um, so I uh, always say, you know, you have to understand that weirdly, our messed up attitudes about sex and particularly our policing of women and sex, really you could trace it all back to one thing. The plow. Which is the plow. Right. Yeah. So. Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to jump in. That's OK. I guess you read my book. Thank you for reading. <laughs> it. Um, but 10 to th 10 to 12,000 years ago, we, we women, you know, used to sort of roam and uh, wander and gather all day uh, far from the eyes of other people. They were just out there with each other gathering. Um, they had a lot of freedom. 
Um, the gathering uh, kept their fertility levels down quite a bit. So they had a, a kind of long interbirth interval of maybe four to five years between babies, just naturally that happened because they had low fat levels. So they were ovulating, not in a monthly way. Um, and they were providers. Women brought in the calories, right? Meat was this thing that, uh, that, that male early hominins and, and men uh, got sometimes, right? It was like the icing on the cake, right? The cake was the shaw roots and the tubers uh, and the things that the monogo nuts, whatever it was, the women, wherever they were in whichever ecology uh, were gathering. That was the mainstay of human survival, what women brought in. And that made women total boss bitches on many metrics. Uh, they had important political voices, we, we believe, and we know from studying contemporary hunter-gatherers. And what would that mean in an unstratified society? It would mean that women had an important uh, voice in determining, well, should the band stay here? Should the band go there? Um, you know, people listened to what women had to say. Um, their opinions were respected. Yeah, because they were putting the food on the table, right? Not that there were tables. Um, but, you know, when somebody's feeding you, you're not going to be an idiot and raise your hand against her. Right. So. So that's like why I, I do all the cooking around here. <laughs> right. OK, just do your part, Evan. Again. <laughs> so we tra so that was a really interesting, important thing for people to understand about sex, that before the plow came along, women were outside Women were providing most of the calories and women could vote with their feet, right? Like if a guy tried to raise his hand against a woman, that would be pretty crazy of him. Uh, she could just say like, forget it. I'm going to go like live in my mom's compound or like the neighbors, you know, and the people in the band would just come after him and say, that's not what we do. Um, so that's, we really have to understand the importance of that moment in our evolutionary prehistory and that we spent so much of our evolutionary prehistory in this arrangement in which women were essentially bad bitches. They provided the calories, they had important political voices and they could vote with their feet and they weren't having babies. They weren't pushing out a baby every year. It was maybe every four or five years, right? Which with the life expectancy at that time meant, you know, maybe max three kids. Uh, well, you know, some people like my colleague and friend, Chris Ryan and Casilda Jetha have gathered data suggesting that, uh, you know, it wasn't such a hard life and that there was significant uh, longevity that we hadn't previously documented or considered. So I would suggest that people uh, look at that classic book, Sex at Dawn, about that issue. But to just keep it relevant to this point about religion. So about 10 to 12,000 years ago, people started experimenting with domesticating plants rather than going out and gathering them. And then they got good at it. And they started mostly cultivating plants. And then things changed like crazy, especially when they started to do plow agriculture. So what happened when we had the plow? All of a sudden, women weren't roaming and gathering anymore. They were staying on a farm, right? Who could push a plow? There are a couple metrics uh, on which uh, men do have uh, more strength than women. And one of them is upper body strength. 
So through the accident of upper body strength, men became the ones who manned the plow, right? They were outdoors. They were primary producers. Now suddenly, women were living on farms. They were more sedentary. Their fertility levels shot up, right? They had more adipose. Uh, they were ovulating more. They became more fertile. Now they start having babies, a lot of babies in a row, much more quickly than before. Um, and like I said, they're not out ranging and roaming. They're stuck on the farm. Uh, <laughs> I like to say they're just like stuck on the farm, just like fatter and more dependent and more <laughs> fertile, right? Fat, fertile, dependent. Now they're not just dependent uh, on the guys out there pushing the plow. Uh, they have dependent offspring now. Now how had women better behave? Women had fucking better behave and do what men say and be monogamous because suddenly we also now have this idea of property, right? When we were hunter-gatherers, uh, things were, I mean, people have disputed this recently, but the big picture uh, is that hunter-gatherers uh, are more, less stratified and hierarchical, more egalitarian. And then as we switched to plow agriculture, all of a sudden, instead of just gathering and eating what we had that day and then going out the next day and getting it, now suddenly we had reserves. Oh my God, we had extra plants that we had cultivated. We had extra grain stores. We better store this stuff, right? And with storing that stuff came like, stay away from my stuff. Here's a perimeter. Now comes the idea of a perimeter and the idea of perimeter defense, right? So I'm so sorry about the gardeners. I can barely hear it. <laughs> yeah. They're a symptom of plow agriculture. <laughs> the gardeners are almost always men, that the people who do your lawn are almost always men, and the people who do the inside cleaning are almost always women. That's that belief is a remnant of plow agriculture mentality that men should be outside doing the real work um, and that women should be inside uh, and, and women should be uh, domestic because they can't run the plow. Those ideas are very much alive, including in the idea that the guys mowing my lawn are guys. You should see Jana squat sometime. I think that'll throw that uh, you know, <laughs> anthropological look about strength to a, you know. Anyway, no, women, sorry, continue. We, women do on many measures, uh, you know, are as strong as men, but upper body strength and grip strength are both things that you need for the plow and are both things that men have more than women. So through this total accident of upper body strength and grip strength, men uh, started to rule the world. And I get into it in more detail, but you can see how this was a catastrophe for women who instead of being out in the bush, gathering stuff, running their own lives, hooking up with a lover, bringing back all the bacon, uh, you know, and being the big badasses, now suddenly they're transformed. They're pregnant all the time. They're dependent. They have dependent offspring. Um, and they're not primary providers anymore. They don't have clout. There goes all the clout. So when people now along with perimeter defense and the idea that I have these grain reserves and they're my property, along with that idea comes another idea about property. This is my wife. I'm going to pass that stuff along, all that grain, these tools, this cattle, these draft animals. I'm going to be, now that we have this idea of property, where's it going to go when I die? It's going to go to my kids. Wait a second. That better be my kid. So you see how 
plow agriculture and all the social changes that it ushered in altered female fates and gave birth to this idea that women should be inside at the hearth and they better be monogamous because the stakes are high. So the church just came in from another angle after plow agriculture and started uh, reinforcing this message. But don't just blame the church. When you're mad at the church and when we're talking about the church shaming people, remember to always say, and the damned plow, right? <laughs> the damned plow that gave the church the power that it did to police uh, our sexuality and particularly to police female sexuality. And then here comes this idea of infidelity that you're a non-believer if you're not monogamous. So you can't disentangle any of that weirdly from the plow. The fucking Pope and the plow. <laughs> Who knew? Good God. Not, not plowing the Funny. Pope. <laughs> yeah, we're not plowing the pope. Not plowing the pope, but the pope. We're not, the don't don't do that. But you no. know, to your point, a lot of people do think it's the church, and they have a they they uh, have a point that the church did become uh, the enforcer of monogamy of uh, nuclear family, which is like such a novel family form. I mean, the nuclear family is so new; it's like only as old as a, the blink of an eye, right? Living in groups. Uh, breeding cooperatively, raising uh, offspring cooperatively. That is our jam. That is what we did uh, forever. This whole new thing of being monogamous, living in a dyad, which is just a fancy term for a couple, uh, and raising our kids without help from other people, absolutely novel. And we are we can do it uh, because we're flexible social and sexual strategists, but it's hard. It's hard for us. And that's one of the reasons that the church comes down on us so hard about family stuff. It's just it, the metric of how hard the church comes down on us about stuff we're supposed to do is a metric of how hard that stuff is for us to do and how new it is and how it goes against the grain of our being for many of us. That brings up a fascinating conversation about monogamy and are we supposed to be monogamous? You said it's hard. We can do it. But is our natural resting pulse to not be monogamous, to be in these co-op family units? Um, you know, and, and what does that mean societally as we kind of start to see this shift more towards polyamory? Um, we start to see this shift towards you know, longer life expectancy where people are clearly not being able to sustain marriages. Divorce rates are through the roof. So what it, what where should we be? You know, like what does the next 10 years look like as, as COVID and tech hit? And what is really our basic resting pulse in relationships? The, this is uh, so fascinating. And I, I was going to say, like, you could write a book about it. I mean, I did. Chris Ryan did. <laughs> Helen Fisher did. A lot of us have written books about this from different perspectives. Um, Stephanie Coons is one of my favorite people, an historian of marriage and a sociologist who writes about this. I'm going to say something which is kind of two parts that might seem to contradict each other, but I hope not. Um, our resting pulse as a species sexually is that we don't have a resting pulse. Um, our resting pulse is that we were designed to be able to be really flexible and changeable. And that's the reason that you will see societies where there's polyandry, right? Women have more than one husband and women are thriving. That's why you'll see um, societies where there's um, polygyny, right? Where men have more than one wife and women manage to thrive 
uh, and um, have pretty good reproductive success. You will see uh, settings where um, women are, like among the Himba that I write about in Northern Namibia, you will see settings where female infidelity is completely uh, just taken for granted as a, a matter of fact and a thing that women do and women are thriving uh, in terms of their reproductive success. And then you will see set settings uh, like the United States where a woman might die uh, for being sexually autonomous and having more than one partner at a time, literally might be killed. Uh, and women are, uh, obviously women are not, it's hard to say that they're thriving if you know they're, they're risking physical violence. Um, but they are managing. So we can manage in lots of different settings and that is the hallmark of our species. Because we can succeed in these different settings, because we don't have a resting pulse, that's why we're here. You know, for all we know, early homo uh, forms, homo ergaster, uh, homo habilis, whatever, for all we know, they had much more rigid social strategies and that's the reason that they're not here. But we, raised our young cooperatively. Uh, we bred with multiple partners because that spread around uh, guys thinking that might be mine, right? And uh, so that made them more likely to invest. I'm sorry, I mean, I, my gardener is uh, right there. That made it more <laughs> likely that the, that the offspring would survive to reproduce themselves, that we did this cooperatively. And I get into that a lot in much more detail um, in my book on True. Um, but so I want to say two things, which is that we are super flexible sexually and socially. And we can't be said to have a resting pulse for that reason. That said, what was the soup we cooked in? That's how I like to put it. It's not that it's how we are naturally, because how we are naturally is we can handle just about anything and be okay. Um, but the soup we were cooked in uh, for most of our evolutionary prehistory was, yeah, um, women have a lot of freedom. Uh, they have a lot of self-determination. They have a lot of political clout within the band because they provide calories. And so wherever you see that there are high rates of female labor force participation and, and high rates of female political participation, you're going to see that women can run their own sexual show. So we evolved in a soup where women ran the show, uh, you know, socially, and they ran their own show sexually. They had clout and they did what they wanted to do sexually speaking. And we raised our offspring cooperatively. Uh, and we, uh, there was a lot of ranging and roaming and there wasn't a lot of hierarchy and stratification. That's the soup that we cooked in. So I like to draw that distinction between how we are naturally and, and, uh, how we were cooked, right? <laughs> but I do think that there is a reason, um, you know, that the human female, like our very close relative, the bonobo female, um, has a richly innervated forward-facing clitoris, uh, that women have an, orga an organ that's just for orgasms and pleasure alone, and men don't. Um, I think there's a So reason. unfair. It's so unfair. I mean, you guys have a great... Or look, look at it this way, Evan. Don't feel jealous. <laughs> Same exact embryonic tissue. It just uh -huh. developed differently. Yours is on the outside. Ours is on the inside. But, but penises are functional, right? Mm -hmm. They're for peeing and pleasure. The clitoris is just a playground. 
That is all that thing is. It's not really for reproduction. It's for feeling good. And a lot of people get confused. They say, they think that like evolutionary biology is like that you would assert like women or earlier hominin females uh, had multiple partnerships um, because it was the best way for their baby to survive. And it's like, no, they didn't. They did it because it felt good, right? So that human women have a clitoris tells us a lot about the evolutionary backstory of female sexuality, that it was freewheeling, that it was autonomous, and that uh, women were seeking out uh, what felt good. And I, and and our non-human primate relatives continue to do that. I mean, there are no, there are, I can't think of a single species anymore, a social species of non-human primate uh, where the females are monogamous. Um, so, and then you look at the contemporary sex, uh, sex research that shows uh, that women start to really itch earlier in long-time relation, long-term relationships than men do. And the picture emerges very, very clearly uh, that if monogamy is a tight fit for anyone, uh, it's women. And now we have the data, we have the sex research data that show that in general, in a long-term um, cohabiting relationship, uh, it's women who get bored first. You know, it's women who start to itch. It's women for whom uh, monogamy is a tight shoe. And Why is that? <laughs> because women evolved even more than men to seek out the pleasures of multiple partnership, to seek out the pleasures of orgasm. Um, and I get into in Untrue how that conferred a lot of benefits. If, if women or you know, female hominins were having sex with m multiple partners. Uh, it was a great, uh, it was a great strategy. They got, they upped their chances of getting really high quality sperm, right? If you're just doing one guy, um, what if he's shooting blanks? What if his sperm are slow swimmers? Um, you're fucked, excuse me for saying that, right? What, yeah, what way. if he's, you can hedge against male infertility. What if he's infertile? Well, gosh, have a few partners uh, so that you're guaranteed that, you know, pretty much that somebody's going to be fertile. Let me do four guys while I'm ovulating and feeling <laughs> super horny. Right. And then what about, um, what if he's just like, if not just if he's infertile, not just if he has low quality sperm, but what if only one guy thinks this offspring is his? And the other guys uh, want to be violent toward my offspring. Oh, I want a bunch of them to think that this offspring is theirs so that not only will they not go after it, they'll protect it and me. So what I'm going to say without getting into too much detail is that throughout our evolutionary prehistory, being non-monogamous has been a super adaptive strategy for hominin females, for non-human primate females, and for human women, non-monogamy uh, was a better strategy for them uh, than it was for men. Let me say a few things about males of multiple mammal species. If you're a male and you're having sex with multiple females, what are the chances that every single one of them you're going to hit on ovulation day? Not unless that's all you're doing. 
crap. Your chances are crap. Really? If that's all you're doing and you're hitting 30 women, what are the chances that you're hitting them all on the right day? Well, since women in a group tend to ovulate at the same time, or as we know from, so then yes, that, it, it, you know, your sperm count would drop significantly. After it would drop time. significantly. And so would what matters more is your reproductive success would drop significantly. Now, if you're staying with the same female and putting in the energy to mate guard and making sure that no other males are mating with her, now you're hitting her on the right day. Let me go on. If you're a male and you're having sex with multiple females, we know that there are really high rates of spontaneous uh, miscarriage among many mammal species, very high rates. Um, and some species, you know, as high as 50%. What are the chances that you're going to get multiple females or even one pregnant if you're doing all of them? And then that that pregnancy is going to hold, chances aren't that good. Meanwhile, if you're a male and you stick around, you hit her on her ovulation day, then she's pregnant, then she loses the pregnancy. In many mammal species, there's a period of heightened fertility right after that pregnancy loss. If you're mate guarding, if you're sticking with one female, then you're gonna be able to have sex with her again during that uh, time of enhanced fertility. Now let's talk about afterwards. Say the pregnancy holds for all those months and then uh, the female reproduces, you know, here's the offspring. What are the chances that that offspring is going to do well in contexts where in many contexts there's male infanticide in many species, that the males will come in and kill the offspring of a female so that she'll ovulate again if it's not his offspring. So she'll ovulate again so he can impregnate her. So if you're just like pumping and dumping and then you go, maybe you knocked her up, maybe through some miracle the pregnancy holds, maybe she has the offspring. And then you're not there because you're off nailing other females. What happens? A male comes in, takes your reproductive success package, right? Your offspring and bashes its brains out, right? Because we know that there's infanticide in many, uh, among males of many mammal species. Okay. Wow. Meanwhile, in many species, biparental care is going to be the thing that gets that offspring not only not killed by a marauding male, right? Because you're there to mate guard. But then biparental care means that it's more likely that your offspring is going to survive to the age to reproduce him or herself. Suddenly, when we look at the facts on the ground, we see that monogamy is a strategy that really is suitable to males of many species in the aggregate and really unsuitable for females, so one argument to be made is that all of sexual selection, uh, and we do know, as a matter of fact, that you know there's natural selection and there's sexual selection. And sexual selection has always basically been males trying to control female fertility, sexuality, and reproduction, and then females developing a counter strategy and saying, no way, Jose, right? So you try to, <laughs> you try to lock your girlfriend down, and then she gets a smartphone, right? And she's like, now you can't, right? That's a contemporary example of how sexual selection works and how, um, yeah, you know, there have always been these currents um, between male attempts to control female sexuality and female uh, attempts to have a counter strategy and have multiple partners. Why? Because multiple partnership is beneficial to females in ways that it just isn't to males. Now, a lot of times 
you tell people this and it really tracks for women, especially when you show them the contemporary sex research, which shows that rather than being asexual in long-term relationships, women are just bored. So let me back up a little bit. We have been fed this narrative that men need to wander and roam. Who was doing that in our evolutionary prehistory? Women. Women were the ones who were mostly wandering and roaming and hunting. And they were, they were gathering. Men didn't have to go probably quite so far to hunt. But women were roaming and, and ranging at least as often and as much as men were. Um, so we have this idea in our heads that men, because they have lots of randy sperm, they need to get out and sow their seed. But we see when we look at other species um, and rates of reproductive success that that's just not the case. Uh, men, males of most species will increase their reproductive success slightly more by being monogamous, whereas females of many, many mammal species will do slightly to notably better in their reproductive success if they have multiple partners, depending on the ecology. So my point and I do have one, is that when we look at contemporary sex research, we see this trend among cohabiting heterosexuals. And I want to say as a little side note here that, you know, sex research and evolutionary biology really need to wake up and start looking at how people are mating and relating and having sex now, uh, which is, you know, off this heteronormative script of uh, heterosexual reproduction. It's not how things are happening anymore. And um, it's time for the research to catch up. Uh, meanwhile, when we talk about the evolutionary backstory of our sexuality, we do have to talk about reproduction. So that's why I'm doing that. I'm not privileging it. And I don't privilege it in any of my writing. Um, sex researchers need to queer it up. And so do evolutionary biologists. Uh, so if any of you are listening, do it. Um, uh, so... So, okay, so here's the deal. You look at the contemporary uh, sex research. You look at a study of over 10,000 adults in the UK between the ages of 17 and 70 by Dr. Cynthia Graham. You look at a study by Kristen Mark, an American sex researcher who looked at uh, several thousand uh, couples in the US. Uh, you look at the sex research by somebody named Annika Gunst, uh, a Finnish sex researcher who looked at, uh, I believe, over 2,000 women in long-term uh, relationships uh, in Finland. And you look at some German longitudinal studies about heterosexuals in long-term cohabiting relationships. You see them all converge on the same insight and the same truth, which is that in these relationships, cohabiting long-term exclusive relationships within years one to four among women only, there is a, a dramatic drop-off in the interest in having sex between years one and four, whereas male desire tends to ebb. Women reported in Kristen Mark's study uh, that they were experiencing um, uh, this drop in desire, and that it was increasing the likelihood that they would commit infidelity. Women in Annika Gunst's Finnish study 
similarly had this drop of desire and interest in sex between years one and four. And they told the researchers that it didn't even matter that the partners knew their bodies really well and that they were having more orgasms. They were still less interested in sex. In Cynthia Graham's study, of all those uh, thousands of British adults of many ages, it was among women only that living together and being monogamous predicted that they would just not be interested in sex. Okay. Now, people used to think that that meant, yeah, sure, because women just don't like sex as much as men do. So they just like start going without sex. And we told women that. But what happens when you actually talk to the women who are saying, yeah, here's one to four. I went like, uh, a sex researcher named Marta Miana decided to talk to them about it. And they would come to her and they would say, oh my God, I love my husband so much. She had a couple of lesbians in the study, I believe. Oh my God, I love my wife so much. This person is the perfect partner. I'm happy. I want us to have a life together. I'm, but I'm broken. I don't have a libido. I don't want to have sex. Something's wrong. Fix me. And Marta Miana said, what if you could have sex with that hot stud? And they were like, oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. I, I, my libido is that. <laughs> like, you guys, it's not that women are less sexual and lose interest in sex. It's that because of our evolutionary prehistory, because we evolved a clitoris, uh, because of the soup that women were cooked in, women have an evolved appetite for variety and novelty and adventure when it comes for sex that we have attributed to men only. Women have it, they probably have it more, and that is why their desire is going like this between years one and four, Whereas male desire is ebbing more slowly because remember all the advantages that men get when they stick around? Remember how that increases their reproductive success? Remember how that totally fucks up women's reproductive sex to only have sex with one partner? There's a reason that the sex research is showing that women really struggle with long-term committed monogamy and coziness. We've been taught that women love coziness. Really? then why do you go out to dinner with all your girlfriends back when we could do that and talk about how sex is boring? Why do women, women say that after years one to four when they think they're sexually dead and that's in the aggregate, why is it mostly women who are saying, oh, wait, no, if I could be with him or her, oh no, my libido would definitely come back. Women aren't broken. Women aren't less sexual than men. It's that long-term committed exclusive relationships, particularly when you're living together, dampen the female libido in ways that they don't dampen the male libido. Sex researchers know it. They're seeing it. They're just not adding in the evolutionary backstory about why, uh, which is what I was doing and untrue. So that is a long way of saying uh, that I hope that the future of sexuality, COVID and tech, and all those things factored in. I just hope that the future of sexuality and relationships looks like the past of sexuality and relationships, uh, which is that women will have a lot more uh, autonomy. They'll have a lot more self-determination and it will not be dangerous uh, for them to seek out the multiple partnerships that they're, or, the, or however they wanna get variety and novelty and adventure.
because you can get it with toys, get it with role play with your long-term partner. You can get it by watching porn. You can get it by going to a sex party and just watching or participating. There are millions of ways, I guess, for women to get the sexual variety and novelty and adventure that we evolved to want and need. There are many ways to get it, but we have to make sure that women are getting it. Otherwise, they're going to be blowing up their long-term relationships. Uh, they're going to be withholding sex without, without understanding why, and they're going to think that they're broken, and they're not. They're women being women. Oh, this is fascinating. You know, when, Wednesday, um, one, one topic that I actually originally heard from you was this idea of skirt clubs. And can mm-hmm. you please explain what those are and kind of the, the history of that maybe and why, why maybe it's kind of a more um, evolving, popular thing these days? Yeah, like how, well, first, maybe I should say what skirt, skirt club is. It's, yeah. a, it's a sex club started for women only by my friend Genevieve Lejeune. She wasn't my friend before I wrote Untrue. Um, but the interesting thing is it's an all women sex party, but most of the women who go are in long-term relationships or marriages with men. And they're straight. And they identify uh, as straight or by, I believe that Jen told me that she, I know that she told me that she put a Kinsey scale, uh, on one of her applications for membership. And I believe that she told me that most women who attend skirt club identify as a two or three on the Kinsey scale. It's in my book on true, meaning that they identify as mostly straight, right? So Genevieve, uh, who identifies as bisexual started organizing these parties, uh, for straight or bisexual women, um, who felt like mostly I'm heterosexual, but I want to have fun this way. And it is meaningful that the parties are so hugely, hugely popular. Uh, she has, she had before COVID, she had parties in Amsterdam, um, you know, Singapore, uh, Shanghai, Sydney, Melbourne, San Francisco, New York, uh, Vienna, Paris. She had these parties all over the world and they were uh, really well attended and got tons of press. But what to me was interesting as a social scientist is just how well attended they were. And, uh, you know, the way I look at it is that skirt club really cleaves to um, a truth in our evolutionary prehistory. And I get into this in in Untrue, I talk about observing a group of bonobos uh, at the San Diego Zoo with the primatologist and world's leading expert on bonobo social and sexual behavior, uh, Dr. Amy Parrish. I talk about observing bonobos and then observing women at a skirt club party. Um, And just a very, just as a very brief aside here, what I'll say is bonobos, many people think that we're more closely related to bonobos than we are to chimps. Um, We are certainly as related to bonobos uh, as we are to chimps. Bonobos in uh, the wild only live in DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, which used to be known as Zaire. Um, And there's been a lot of political unrest there for decades. Uh, So for a long time, people didn't, primatologists didn't even know that bonobos existed. People who lived in DRC knew about them, but primatologists didn't uh, because it was just such a violent area and we couldn't go there and study uh, bonobos. So we didn't know that they existed. And when we learned that they existed, uh, thanks to Amy Parrish, we learned that they are very different uh, from chimps. 
who we had forever said were just like us. Uh, chimps are a male dominant species. Bonobos are a female dominant species. The females eat first, they get groomed more and they kick the males asses. Um, Amy, uh, Dr. Amy Parrish looked at veterinary records and found that something uh, like 99% of serious injuries that were inflicted, uh, that, were, that a bonobo experienced had been inflicted on males by females. So between that pattern, eating first and being groomed first, um, it was very easy, even though it went against any, everything we'd been taught about chimps to see that bonobos were female dominant species. How do they become a female dominant species? Um, the females disperse from their natal group at sexual maturity, uh, which means that they are leaving their power base, their kin, and they're going into this new group of all these like powerful females. And you would think like they're going to get their asses kicked. What do female bonobos do when they come into a new troop? Well, bonobos, we know when they experience tension, um, when they come upon a stressful situation, they do something very different from what chimps do. If you show chimps a cache of food, or another troop of chimps. Uh, the first thing they will start doing is flipping out and becoming aggressive, at least the chimps who have been studied a lot uh, in Tanzania. They will start flipping out and becoming aggressive. That's the first thing they'll do. There are only so many bananas and they start getting violent. There's another troop of chimps, they start getting violent. Bonobos, show them a cache of food. Uh, show them another troop of bonobos. What is the first thing they do? They're stressed out or they're seeing this input that could, it creates anxiety or potential anxiety. And so the first thing they start to do is they have sex, right? So they start having sex with each other. And this is the way they dispel tension. Chimps express and dispel tension with aggression, bonobos with sexual behavior. I'm a bonobo. Oh. Hey, are you a bonobo? Okay, great. I often say that Lake New York is the land of chimps and, yeah, and California is the land of bonobos. Yeah. So the other thing that's really interesting is so when a female comes into a new troop, what she does is she starts to have sex with the other bonobos. But she'll often be solicited for sex by two bonobos at a time because that's just how bonobos roll. So when a female is solicited for sex, the way bonobos solicit for sex is they come up and they put their arm around the other bonobo, right? So this means, do you want to have sex? Now, if I'm a female and Evan is soliciting me for sex over here and Janet has her arm around me over here soliciting me for sex, the overwhelming likelihood if I'm a female bonobo is I'm going to turn to Jana and go off and have sex with her. And many primatologists have documented that female bonobos have a preference to have sex with other female bonobos. Why would this preference have evolved? Well, we understand that it's at the root of bonobos being a female dominant species. Male bonobos are much bigger than females. They could destroy them. They could tear them limb from limb. But what did female bonobos sort of stumble upon as a strategy because it felt better? They stumbled upon the strategy that the reason a female is more likely to have sex with a female is remember I talked about the richly innervated forward facing large clitoris that's pretty exposed in bonobos. It feels so much better to rub those clitorides 
That's a plural clitoris, if you want to say that as a general. Not, that not, was not awesome. Uh, like, yeah. Not so. clitoris, clitoridae? Clitorides. Clitorides. That's, that's what primatologists say. Um, so that's that's how I use I'm totally hashtagging that today. <laughs> <laughs> hey, clitorides. Just get it out there, Evan. So it feels so much better to rub those two clits together. There's so much more stimulation. You're so much more likely to have an awesome orgasm that blows your mind than you are if your clitoris is front facing, right? Pardon my, it's, it's here, right? You're having intercourse this way or this way with the male. It's not the same quality of stimulation as it is from what we call G to G rub, rubbing, genital general rubbing, G to G action. So G to G action, if people like porn, I'm like, think of G to G action as like scissoring, right? Right. Versus um, intercourse, which is obviously fucking penetration. Those female bonobos with their big forward facing clits are getting such better feelings from doing that. That's the reason they do it. Now, there's another thing that happens when females have sex together. Remember how we started the talk today uh, discussing um, the sort of neurochemistry and the, the biology and the chemistry of attachment and social bonding and sexual pleasure, those females rub their clits together and boy, they get attached to each other. Boy, they form a bond. And then what happens? All the females are bonded and they have formed coalitions. From having sex together, from having orgasms with each other, they form these powerful coalitions that allow them to physically overpower males. That is how bonobos became a female dominant species because they had clits and it felt better to rub their clit against another female's clit. And that built social connection and that built coalitions. And that is the way that smaller, technically weaker female bonobos are in charge of male bonobos and run the show. All that from a clip. So let's get back to skirt club. When I went to skirt club, I said, this is a bonobo party. This is women, because they weren't just there having sex. They were there exchanging business cards back when they did that, sharing their uh, you know, contact information, not just to get together and have sex again, um, but to uh, kind of connect and build social connections. Um, I've heard many stories of women who go to skirt club and they go to these wild sex parties, but what ends up happening is they build a business relationship. Um, So that was an interesting aspect of skirt club for me, seeing women building social relationships and social bonds and coalitions outside of skirt club from their having sex with each other. But really, the other fascinating thing about Skirt Club was that it, like bonobos, like observing bonobos, it was a living laboratory to observe uh, the theoretical idea that I saw in action that females evolved to seek out sexual variety, sexual novelty, and sexual adventure in ways that we have previously ignored. And that unconstrained female sexuality is every bit as assertive and selfish and pleasure focused as we have said male uh, sexuality is. I mean, anybody who believes what Charles Darwin said about women, uh, the females of most species 
being coy and reticent when it comes to sex, they need to go to skirt club. I mean, I, I, I looked and I said, this is what people, this is what, this is what primatologists and anthropologists mean when they say that in ecologies where women or females are unconstrained, uh, their sexuality is there. Every bit is agentic. They take agency. Every bit is agentic, assertive, pleasure-focused, and selfish as male sexuality. So it was a really interesting thing to see. And it was really interesting to see how our evolutionary prehistory uh, that we see in bonobos is alive and well in some of our social and sexual behaviors today at Skirt Club. So Wednesday, I, like I love this. This is this is this is something that needs to get out a lot. But he, here's my here's my thought process on this. While you were talking about this, I was thinking about the book, The Wild Oats Project, uh, which oh, is an yeah. author from Sacramento. And you know, largely, I, I feel like that book is almost a cautionary tale for this polyamorous movement. Mm. Not that. And, and, and what I see is, is the, um, the evolutionary biology is butting up against our current social structure. Yes, 100%. So, That's called ecology. That's why we say that sex always happens at the intersection. For women, sex is always happening at the intersection of the clitoris and the culture, right? Go on. Well, and, and so my, my question is, is how do we move past that? Because if, if we look at this Wild Oats project as somewhat of a cautionary tale, she wanted marriage, she wanted the kids. And in the end, she really didn't end up with anything, um, you know, based off of her initial idea. How do we transition our society from our evolutionary roots to where we want to go without having social chaos? Um. Okay, well, I'm not sure how you're defining social chaos, Evan, but I let me just engage with this point. I really uh, love that you brought up this point of us being in conflict with our cultural envelope, if you will, right? Our ecology does not welcome uh, that women uh, are primed for bonobo connection and sex, right? So let's go back to that point of how we evolved as very flexible sexual and social strategists. Until right? the Pope and the plow. <laughs> right, right. Not plowing so, the Pope. Yes, not plowing you, the Pope. If you look at places where women are forced to repair to menstrual huts monthly, right? Like in some parts of Mali, for example. Um, so that men can figure out when they menstruated and make sure that they have been monogamous, right? In that context, Female sexuality is going to be very muted. It's going to be scary to be sexual, and it could literally be suicidal to have multiple partnerships. And so that evolved predilection, if you will, for multiple partners, because we're flexible socially and sexually, women will tamp that down. If you are in a cultural container that is like ebullient and gregarious and tolerant of female sexuality and in a range of ways of being sexual among all people, then you will see things like what we see in some parts of the United States. Um, for example, I interviewed Misha Lynn uh, for Untrue, and she was one of the founders of a group called Open Love New York, uh, which is for polyamorous people. And Misha and other people who are poly will talk about 
uh, how many women are really active in the polyamory movement. And many therapists will talk about how anecdotally they were expecting that it was men who would come be coming in and saying, I want to open up this relationship. But mostly uh, they were finding that it was women. Um, David Lay is just one of the psychologists uh, who told me that. And then you see that the history of the polyamory movement, we're basically in phase three um, of polyamory in our country. The first phase was like romantic poets and then later transcendentalists, right? And then the second phase was sort of the hippie movement where monogamy was square. And now we're in the third phase of polyamory uh, in our country. And if people are interested in reading about the history of polyamory, Elizabeth Sheff, S-H-E-F-F is one of my favorite historians of polyamory. But what we know, because we know the history of the polyamory movement, is that it has surprisingly women-friendly origins and women were often the ones rather than men pushing the polyamory agenda, okay? So there can be contexts where women uh, are either repaired to menstrual huts and so their sexuality becomes muted or they can be leading the polyamory movement and it really all depends on the ecology. And I could tell you that within the same one mile radius in Brooklyn, uh, there were people at Hacienda, right? Which is an intentionally sex positive community where women uh, having multiple partners or maybe just having one partner uh, and practicing serial monogamy is openly uh, accepted and even celebrated. And a mile from there, uh, a woman who is um, living in very different circumstances, if she cheats on her partner, she could get shot in the face and killed, right? So we see the range of the ways in which ecology impacts female sexuality. Now, you asked about social chaos and how do we get anywhere and what will happen? And the answer is because we're super sexual and it depends on our ecology, what will our ecology be? What will our ecology in the United States, for example, be after four years of Trump? What will it be four years from now? How much of an impact of his uh, sort of antediluvian ideas about sex and gender and that women are supposed to be sort of decorous and decorative, um, how much will that continue to impact uh, the way women think of themselves in this ecology? How much uh, will the idea that um, uh, men should be kind of like Marlboro men, right? Which is an idea that we've had uh, since we were all kids and before. How much will that uh, continue to impact male behavior? Um, so we don't know where our ecology is going. We only know where it is now. And right now, um, you know, we're in a very funny moment of transition. What we do know, when we look at the worldwide ethnographic data, which is what I do for a living, is that anywhere in the world where women have high rates, meaningful, of meaningful political participation, I don't mean where women are like, you know, on the city council only, right? But they're never president of the United States or president of wherever. But where there are meaningful rates of female political participation, like in England, where they had Queen Victoria, they had uh, Queen Elizabeth II and Queen Elizabeth I, where they had Margaret Thatcher, um, where they had May, right? Where there is real political leadership and where women are 
participating in politics at a high level, not a menial level. Anywhere where there's that, combined with women having really meaningful rates of labor force participation, not that women are allowed to be assistants and are paid uh, only 60 cents or 50 cents, right, if they're Native or Black women or Latino women on the dollar. But where women, where there's really meaningful labor force participation, where half the Fortune 100 CEOs are women. In contexts like that, where women have political clout and where women have money and where women have social clout, you are going to see that women will avail themselves of the option of multiple partnership more often because they won't pay a price for it. They won't be slut shamed. They're less likely to be slut shamed because they have money and clout and, and, and they are literally maybe ruling the world, right? Or at least they're ruling the boardroom. And uh, it's hard uh, for the idea that a woman who has multiple partnerships is a slut or is off the grid somehow to prevail if that woman is, uh, has a lot of influence and power and is respected. So the more in context where we see that, uh, we're gonna see more um, of sort of bonobo-like behavior, uh, I think, among women. And we see it already in places like Scandinavia where women have higher rates of uh, political and labor force participation. We see that women often don't marry. They often have uh, children outside of marriage uh, they often have multiple partnerships uh, um, and, uh, you know, they're less likely to die for it. They're less li likely to be slut shamed for it. So that to me uh, will determine what the future of um, sexuality is, whether we're queer, uh, whether we're women, whether we're men, whether we're trans, our ecology is going to have a big impact on what happens with that. And I don't think that we're naturally moving toward anything. It's not, you know, I've seen people in polyamorous communities. First of all, one of the things I like to say is like, well, if anything is on the script of how we evolved socially and sexually, it would be um, living in a band and sort of doing things cooperatively, right? Whether it's meal preparation, uh, child care and child rearing uh, or sexuality, that would sort of be, um, if we're going to talk about the soup we got cooked in, like, let's not judge poly people, right? At all. Because to me, they're, they closest resemble the soup we've been cooked in. That said, everything has changed. And remember, ecology is everything. Uh, so I would hate for people to sort of value or think that um, polyamory is somehow more enlightened or better. Uh, it's just one of the ways we evolved to be. I think of it as the soup that we cooked in, and it's one of the reasons we should not judge. Uh, but nor should we say that, you know, the heterosexual monogamous dyad, well, the monogamous dyad. We shouldn't presume that the monogamous dyad is, uh, you know, like for less enlightened people. People can thrive in a number of different situations. I would just warn from my training uh, in F F bio and anthropology uh, and cultural criticism, I would just warn that, uh, just be realistic about monogamy, know about the data that um, maybe counterintuitively um, based on what we've been taught, it is harder for women uh, than it is for men. So if you're heterosexual or if you're, is just a woman in a relationship with a woman. 
if you're anybody in a relationship with a woman, I would be aware of that data. And I would be aware that women do have an evolved appetite for sexual variety and novelty and adventure that we haven't acknowledged. And that if you want that relationship to succeed, uh, maybe don't live together. <laughs> if that's possible, at least have separate bathrooms, if that's possible, <laughs> have, have separate bedrooms, if, if you can. Uh, but for sure, if you can't do any of those things, at least you can uh, spend some time apart, which we know that women, uh, the female libido does well with some space. And um, also make sure that your female partner, whoever you are, uh, make sure that your partner who's a woman, um, who identifies as a woman, is getting that hit of newness that women want and need and evolve to want and need. And if your partner is a woman and you've been together for many years and she shuts down, you should definitely not presume that that's because women is less sexual are, are less sexual. And you should definitely understand that when that happens, it's time to get the variety and novelty and adventure going. And I will say that a lot of women buy into the myth, right? Years one to four happen and suddenly their libido has plunged and they buy into like, I guess I'm my mom. I guess I'm less sexual. And then what do they usually do? Nobody has told them that they have an evolved appetite for variety and novelty and adventure, sexually speaking. Nobody told them that. So they think, okay, I'm, I'm a woman. I don't like sex as much as my male partner does. That's just because I'm a woman. Now I better keep him happy. And then because nobody told them, no, it's not that you don't like sex. It's that it's harder for you to have sex with the same person over and over and over and over and over again, because you're a normal woman. Nobody told them that. Now they start having something called service sex, sex in the service of the relationship sex in the service of their partner who wants it, sex in the service of keeping the peace, sex in the service of not being bothered anymore to have sex. So, so many times when a man is bugging a woman in a long-term relationship with him to have sex with him, and I get it, men get their feelings hurt. This is terrible for men and women that we don't message correctly to people. So many times when a man is asking for sex, wanting sex from his female partner, presuming she's less sexual. How different would it be if instead of turning to him and saying, I'm not in the mood, I don't feel like it, I, I just, whatever, and he thinks that she's not sexual and she thinks she's not sexual. How much better would it be if she turned to him and said, I'm into you, I love you, I want to be with you forever, but you know what the data say. I'm just a normal woman being a normal woman. We need to fucking mix it up. I need to fuck another guy in front of you. Or like, we need to bring another woman in here. Or like, you know, there's a trans person I find super hot. I want us to be with that person or watch porn of that person who turns me on. How many relationships could be saved if instead of women thinking, God, I'm just a normal human woman. I'm not into sex. If they said and said, God, I'm just a normal human woman and I need to get it in new and exciting ways that get me going because that's my evolved appetite. And then finding a way within your relationship container that you can do it. And I always say to men, and men often say to me, like, wait a second, 
my partner just became so much more interesting to me. Wait, <laughs> oh, no, I didn't know that. I just thought she didn't like sex. Now, once they get over the injury that it's not that she doesn't like having sex, it's just that, you know, it's hard for her because of who she is to have sex with you over and over and over and over and over. Once they get over, once they understand that's not personal, that they're not failing their female partner, that their female partner isn't failing them. And that this isn't about the relationship being bad or them doing anything wrong. It's just about women being women and having the evolved appetites that women have in our current cultural container. That's what it's about. Once you go there, it does become a great adventure. Once we take the ego out of it, uh, once we have the actual accurate information, um, I think that it, it becomes uh, partners become more exciting to each other. So that's my my hope. And I would just want to also make sure that I say that, you know, I don't think there's any one healthy way to be. I don't think there's anything wrong with people uh, who decide that monogamy is their cozy, happy uh, sexy place for life. I want to know their secret because they're <laughs> highly unusual. Uh -huh. um, but there's nothing wrong with that. Just as there's nothing wrong with a woman who like is like, as soon as this is over, I'm doing a gangbang. <laughs> those are all those are all normal places right. to be on the spectrum of sexuality because we evolved as flexible sexual and social mm -hmm. strategists. Oh, so fascinating. I don't know how you top that. I mean, that's kind of like the mic drop moment. <laughs> as soon as this is over, I'm I'm going to do a gangbang. <laughs> we had glory hole and gangbang and plow the Pope. <laughs> I can I can stand by all those quotes. I stand by this. Oh, quote. wonderful. <laughs> this this has just been I am I feel like I need to go journal <laughs> or like absorb this. This is awesome. Do you want awesome. to go to a skirt party instead? <laughs> Maybe when, that's skirt, all when skirt clubs back up, Jana, come to a skirt club party with me. Let me know. You don't have to do anything. You can if you want. You can watch. But yes, you're cordially invited. I'm sure Genevieve would love to have you attend. Let me know. I think. Yeah, and I'm sorry, that. Evan. No, no men allowed, Evan. But Jana, I don't want to go. I, like, like, look, I, I think that that's a fascinating experience. I think that more women need to experience that. I think, you know, look, here's the, here's the shitty part about this. I wrote about this yesterday. This is Women's History Month and the fact that it's only a month. Like, we're only celebrating, you know, it, it's, an, it's a travesty at best, but we have to recognize gender equality and we haven't done that. I will blame the church for that wholeheartedly. We can say the plow, but you know, coming from a staunch Catholic family, I know that yeah, the, the, the Catholic church stepped in and continued the work of the plow 100%. Yeah. So I, I think this is that moment. And is it a pendulum swing back in a complete opposite direction? I don't know. I love being able to look at history from the sidelines and say, you know, this is what happened. And we're kind of seeing it in motion now. But I mean, the idea of a skirt party or a skirt club or whatever it is, you know, the idea of being able to have real tangible conversations based off of history and say, there's nothing wrong with me. This is what I need. This is what I want. I mean, right. what would happen if we pulled the kids aside in middle school and we separated them out and talked about the birds and the bees and said, no, this is how this shit's going to work for the rest <laughs> of your life. Learn this now. You'll save yourself a heart. And we, we just talked about incels the other day, like the voluntarily or involuntarily celibate. Uh -huh. It's like, We've got some serious sexual dysfunction in this country, and it's I, I love the conversation that you're starting with everything, and it's based off of research. It's not opinion. It's not the Bible. It's like 
no dumb shits. This is history. Yeah, this is history and evolutionary prehistory. And I hope, you know, I always say that sort of my elevator pitch about myself is that I'm a, a social scientist and I blend science, social science and storytelling to help people understand themselves better. And I especially uh, want women uh, to understand that social science and science can help them have these aha moments about themselves and to know why they think what they think, why they feel what they feel, why they want what they want. Um, but it, it applies across the board. And I'll just say that when we misrepresent uh, who women and people who identify as women are sexually, we're also misrepresenting uh, and doing harm to people who identify as men. Um, right? Because when we misrepresent people sexually, we're misrepresenting them socially. So I always say that Untrue um, and my podcast are um, mostly about women, but men are cordially invited because uh, when, we're, when we're harming women with misrepresentations about who they are sexually, we're, we're harming men, right? If we say that women are supposed to be these indoor guardians uh, and they're supposed to be the gatekeepers of sex, uh, wow, then we're saying what? That men are these um, ever ready energizer fuck bunnies and you're supposed to just take them down off the shelf and they have a hard on and do whatever you want and they don't have feelings. Um, that's not true. Um, we know that a lot of men really enjoy feeling connected and can't get a hard on without it. Uh, we know men don't want to have sex when they feel sick, when they feel sad, when they've had an argument, when they feel insecure, when they're stressed about work. So that's just one example of how, you know, how we mess with men when we mess with men when it comes to, to misdescribing them sexually and socially. So I just hope my work uh, it takes people in that direction and, and gives them aha moments, whether it's like, aha, I've been having service sex. I need to, I need to fix that. Or aha, like, oh my God, yeah, because, because people have been telling me forever that women are the mon monogamous ones and I'm a man, I've been feeling weird that I like monogamy. So I just, I hope that some of the science and social science in my book and in my work will help set people free. I think it will. And, and this conversation has absolutely helped. I, I think will help uh, that process. So we will, uh, we will be sharing all of your information in our show notes. We would love to have you back on. Uh, this you. was a fascinating conversation. We, yeah. we just barely scratched the I surface. Know. I'd so love to be back on. I love what you guys are doing. Thank you so much. I mean, I looked through some of your other podcasts. I'm so glad uh, that you're talking about sex and that you're bringing it to your audience. And I really appreciate that about you and your work. Thank you. It was an honor to talk to you and be here. Thank you. Well, um, you guys can go to a, uh, a skirt club and I will have breakfast for you when you get back in the. <laughs> That's what I call an ally. That's a male ally. Oh, no. uh, Eggs Benedict. <laughs> it's really good. That's good. We'll be hungry. Pancakes. We're going to show up hungry. Pancakes. No, no, no. Come on. That's pancakes. a joke. Pancakes. Gluten-free pancakes, please. Yes. A skirt club and I say eggs Benedict as breakfast and no one gets the joke. Come on. Is this thing on? Oh, right. Yeah. We're yeah. just, we're, we're thinking about our pleasure. Okay. Exactly. I know. Yeah, I know. I was just being a smart ass. Uh, Wednesday, Martin, again, thank you so yes. much. Uh, we will put all your information on the show notes. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning into another edition <laughs> of the complete human podcast with your host, Jana Breslin and Evan DeMarco. We will see you next week. Sweet.